Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. We're continuing our our series today, AD 30, which is basically a a chronological walk through the life of Christ. And I've entitled our message, When Jesus is the Problem with Jesus. I want to talk about one of my favorite passages in the Bible. It's it's not a feel-good story. There is no happy resolution in this story. It, It doesn't have a good ending necessarily. Nobody comes to faith as a result of this at the end of the story. Nobody gets healed. But it's one of my favorite passages because of its complete transparency and honesty about faith and doubt. Even with people who saw Jesus personally, it's kind of fascinating when you look at the lives of the apostles or others who were close to Jesus, the struggles that they had to believe, and they walked with him for three years. And if I were to to write a Bible and Jesus really weren't the Son of God and he weren't the Messiah, I would never admit the things that the gospel writers admit about the struggles with doubt that the people had who walked with Jesus. And today we have one of those examples. One writer says, as long as you have faith, you're going to have doubt. Doubt is a normal part of our spiritual journeys. I sometimes use the following illustration when I'm speaking. I tell the audience that I have a $20 bill in my hand and I ask for a volunteer who believes me. We're not gonna do this illustration because I didn't wanna lose $20. Usually only a few hands go up. Then I tell the volunteer that I'm about to destroy his or her faith. I open my hand and show the $20 bill. Now the reason I can say I'm destroying his or her faith is that now he and she knows that I hold the bill. He or she sees the bill and doesn't need faith anymore. Faith is required only when we have doubts, when we don't know for sure. Once knowledge comes, faith is no more. Sometimes a person is tempted to think, I I can't become a Christian because I still have doubts. I'm still not sure. But as long as doubt exists, as long as the person is still uncertain, that's the only time faith is needed. When the doubts are gone, the person doesn't need faith anymore. Then knowledge, full knowledge, has come. I tell the audience that's exactly the point that Paul was making his letter to the church at Corinth. He says, now we see but a poor reflection of Jesus. Now we have confusion, misunderstanding, doubts, and questions. But then, when we go to heaven, we shall see face to face. We don't see face to face yet. Now I know in part with questions and doubts, but then I shall fully know, even as I am fully known. Doubt and struggles with faith are a normal part of our spiritual journey. Now for some reason, we tend not to accept this. We think we're bad Christians if we're doubting some things. We think our our faith isn't strong enough. Now that sounds fine, but I think we would all admit that we are living not just in a COVID pandemic, but in a doubt and skepticism pandemic. Among young adults, Sociologists are seeing a major shift taking place away from Christianity. Recent studies have brought the trend to light. 
Among the findings released in a survey about 10 years ago, one stood out. The percentage claiming no religion almost doubled in about two decades, climbing from 8% in 1990 to 15% in 2008. The trend wasn't confined to one religion. Those marking no religion, and this was when this term nuns was sort of introduced, about 10 or 15 years ago, they're called nuns, no religion, they made up the only group to have grown in every region geographically. The nuns were most numerous among the young. A whopping 22% of the 18 to 29-year-olds claimed no religion, up from 11% in 1990. Now that's a huge shift in a society. The study also found that 73% of nuns came from religious homes. 66% were described by the study as deconverts. That's sort of a newer term, deconverts. They were converts, now they're deconverts. They've exited their conversions. Other results have been grimmer. And at the May 29 uh, Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life, top political scientists Robert Putnam and David Campbell presented research from their book released that month. They reported that young people are dropping out of religion at an alarming rate of five to six times the historic rate. 30 to 40% have no religion today versus five to 10% a generation ago. Now that's a dated survey. It's when this term, the nuns, began to emerge. There's another survey that was done just this year, found that belief in God has declined between generations. So, 83% of those in the silent generation, I don't know why they were considered silent, born 1927 and 1945, maybe they just had really good manners. The silent generation, 83% profess belief in God. The baby boomers, 1946 to 1964, 79% believe in God. Gen Xers, 1965 to 83, 70% identify as Christians. Now this is probably a US statistic. 43%, 70% of Gen Xers, Christian. Millennials, the next generation, 1984 to 2002, 43% said they don't know, care, or believe that God exists. 57% said they were Christian. The report underscores the declining importance of religious faith as highlighted in pandemic reopenings when politicians prioritize restaurants and tattoo parlors over houses of worship as necessary or essential services in our societies. It's everywhere. Doubt and skepticism. After the service, I'm gonna go into my second worship experience watching the Green Bay Packers. It's being recorded as we speak, both in heaven and on my TV. So I'm watching God's team. God's quarterback is an example of this. Aaron Rodgers has openly talked about his, his walking away from faith. If those of you who know much about the NFL or Aaron Rodgers know that he was raised in a very, you know, very devout Christian family in, I believe, Chico, California. Chico, California really is a place. Aaron Rodgers, quarterback for the Green Bay Packers, was raised in an evangelical Christian household. Soon after winning the Super Bowl, about 10 years ago, should have been another one or two since then, Rodgers began questioning his faith, and he told ESPN he no longer identifies with a religious affiliation, now believes organized religion can have a mind-debilitating effect because there's an exclusivity that can shut you out from being open to the world, to people, and energy, and love, and acceptance. He's sort of the norm. We see it everywhere. So what's going on 
What is normal doubt? What's okay for you to doubt? How much do we doubt? And what turns doubt into sort of skepticism and actually sort of a, a breaking of our faith and, and what now sociologists would call deconversion, where we're willing to walk away from and deny what we once believed? We're going to look at that today. I want to read Matthew chapter 11 where the New Testament starts over in your pew Bible, starts over with a, a one again. It's on page eight in your New Testament. So about two-thirds of the way through your Bible, page eight, Matthew chapter 11. We're gonna read verses one through 15. When Jesus had finished giving instruction to his 12 disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John, this is John the Baptist, well imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, to Jesus, are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? Jesus answered and said to them, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Key verse. Blessed is he who does not take offense or fall away at me. As these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. He's probably referring to John being in prison in the palace. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and, the one, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there's not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied, until John. And if you are willing to accept that John himself is Elijah who was to come, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now we're going to focus more on the early part of this passage, but this is about something that was going on in John the Baptist's life, which is probably going to shock you. And the first point talks about this. Doubting Jesus, it happens to the best of us. The Bible is full of faith heroes, and, and I love looking at the faith heroes in the Bible because when they make major blunders and major mistakes in their lives, what do we feel about ourselves? We can relate to them. We feel like we're normal. We feel like there's hope for us because they were imperfect people. They had feet of clay, and so we do too. And so when we see them struggle, we're not like disappointed in them. We're kind of excited for us that maybe there's hope for us too. And so I think of Abraham. Abraham is referred to as the father of faith, and yet, boy, did he ever struggle to trust God for much of his faith journey. You know, God had promised him that he would have a son, and then he's with Sarah, and Sarah becomes postmenopausal, and there's no baby, and there's no physical hope for a baby, but God had promised a son. Abraham's struggling to believe, so uh, Sarah says to him, well, you know, technically, this servant girl of mine is, is ours, and so if you raise up a child through her, it would be ours. Therefore, that might be how God intended to fulfill that promise. So you have the whole Hagar incident and a child. And God said, no, that wasn't my idea. I'm going to bless you with a son through Sarah. And so after Sarah is past childbearing years, she has a child. 
and it is miraculous. And Abraham learns to trust. But he was full of doubt. These Old Testament heroes are, are many times just like us. Moses had a significant temper. It led to murder. David had uncontrolled passion, led to adultery and murder. But here's the shocker. John the Baptist, John the Baptist began to doubt who Jesus was. John the Baptist. If there's one person who should always get Jesus right, it's this dude. Matthew and Luke are incredibly honest about this. Both of them include this story. Now, if Jesus is a lie, if Jesus is mythological or some sort of theological fabrication, I would never have admitted this story into the scriptures. If I'm Matthew and Luke, they are derelict in their duties for introducing doubt by acknowledging that John the Baptist had doubts about Jesus. But they introduce it because they're not trying to hide anything. The Old Testament prophesied that two significant figures would appear in the future of the Jewish nation, Israel. One would be the Messiah, the Christ, or Jesus as we know him. So Messiah and Christ are basically just different terms for his title, that he's a king. Jesus is his name, his earthly name, means savior. So he's gonna be a king. He would be surrounded by miracles. God's hand would be upon him. He would bring God's reign to earth. Most of the scholars in Jesus' day didn't believe he would be the son of God, but they believed that God's hand would be on him. We can see prophecies that indicate he would be a God-like or God himself, but those weren't really emphasized by the people of Jesus' day. We look back and we understand them better. So two people are prophesied to come in the future. One of them is Messiah, which we know as Jesus. The second, who's actually to come first, is the forerunner to the Messiah. Somebody who's going to come just ahead of Jesus and prepare the way. Now that person is said to be somebody who's going to be like Elijah. Somebody who will be a prophet. He's going to prepare the way for the Messiah. There's multiple prophecies about this individual in the Old Testament. The most prominent ones are in Isaiah 40, where it talks about how this person is going to go just before the king, before the Messiah, and he's going to do basically road construction. So he used a metaphor from the Old Testament, the prophets did, and said every valley will be filled in, raised up, the hills will be made low. And what they're referring to there is when a king would come to your region, road work would take place to smooth it out so the king could come on a smooth road. That was John the Baptist's job. Get people's hearts to be like a smooth road so the king would have access Malachi 4, the last couple of verses in the Old Testament, talk about this person who we know as John the Baptist. My point is this. John the Baptist is to be, after 400 silent years, after the Old Testament was completed, there's 400 years where there's no word from God, John the Baptist was to be the first evidence that Jesus, Messiah, God's Son, came to earth. Him opening his mouth, him coming into the human family, the first evidence that Messiah has come to earth. In other words, Jesus, even with a virgin birth and miracles, could not be legitimate without this individual, this prophet preceding him, because they're tied together in the Old Testament. The prophecies are intertwined. To have a Jesus, you have to have a John the Baptist. 
You can't have one without the other. In the New Testament, the apostles understand this, and so Luke in particular uh, intertwines their birth narratives beautifully. The gospel writers all refer to John the Baptist as part of the evidence for Jesus. They all get it, that you have to have a John to have a Jesus. Can't have a Jesus without a John. Gotta have both. So Matthew 11 and Luke 7 is a, is a moment of shocking honesty and doubt where John says to Jesus, get this, are you the expected one or should we look for somebody else? And I said, well, what's wrong with that? John certainly had those questions because if he's gonna acknowledge who Jesus is, he has to have that answered. No, 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 wait a minute. This is well into Jesus' ministry now. Look at what John had said when he first met Jesus. John chapter 1, 29 uh, to 30. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming to him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I'd say he got that right, Jesus as Savior. This is he on behalf of whom I said, after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. He's referencing Jesus' eternal history in the Godhead. That's what John knows about Jesus right after he meets him. How about John 1, 34 to 36, a little later? I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. He's got his deity figured out. God gave him that knowledge, that word of knowledge, right after he met Jesus. He knew it. Next day, John's standing with two of his disciples. That's his disciples, not Jesus' disciples. He looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold the Lamb of God. So when John the Baptist met Jesus, he recognized he was in that process of a divine handoff, a historical handoff. His disciples needed to become disciples of Jesus. And when he first met him and he saw the baptism of Jesus, he made it clear, this is the Son of God, this is the Messiah, this is the one we've been waiting for, and I'm turning it over to him. Now, Matthew chapter 11 He's rubbing his shaved head. Did I get this right? What if I blew it? What if I, a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, have pointed to the wrong dude? Are you the one? Is there somebody else coming? And I gotta tell you, heaven cringed. Now, a few scholars want to give John the Baptist an awesome break, and so they ignore the scriptures to do it. And they basically say, well, John the Baptist isn't asking a real question. He's, he's just throwing it out there so other people will get the answer. There is zero evidence of that in this passage because he's sending some of his own disciples while he's in prison to just check this out and ask the question. John the Baptist blew it for a moment. His faith really cracked and he did not see Jesus clearly and his whole purpose for existing was temporarily undone. In fact, he was actually undermining it with his own doubts. Think about that. As far as I'm concerned, he's the best of us. And his faith was on the ropes. This is John the Baptist doubting 
Jesus, the Messiah, and Son of God. What had happened? What happened to him? Well, same thing that happens to you and me. Doubting Jesus begins with disappointed expectations. That's what happened. Jesus didn't keep coming through the way John the Baptist expected he would. He had expectations. When our expectations aren't met, when the road starts going a different direction than we expect and we start swerving violently to stay on the right road, our faith cracks. Recently, they redid the southwest you know, sort of corner in Calgary with, you know, where uh, uh, Highway 8 now goes west you know, to, uh, oh boy, I should remember all these towns, but I don't right now. Anyway, Highway 8, Glenmore used to go straight west, and it was really easy to understand. It wasn't easy to get around, but it was easy to understand. Well, now with Satina Trail and Sarsi and Highway 8, it's kind of difficult, but I live right there. They made an exit just for us. We are so thankful. We're like the only people who use it, Dee and I, the white trucks on that exit. That's it. They made this exit just for us, and we are so thankful to the city of Calgary and all the millions of dollars that went into this. But if you go down and you watch it, if I were a cop and I, and I really wanted to hand out tickets, I would just go sit on the side of Highway 8 and watch as people get to Sarsi and to Sistina Trail south and, and north, and they try to figure it out. And you could just see vehicles crossing four or five lanes, getting to right. They have no choice anymore, and they're flying across lanes because they recognize at the last minute they're on the wrong path. Their expectations are being interrupted at the last minute, and it's dangerous. Expectations exist in all parts of our lives, and it's hard to move off of them. I've got a birthday coming up. I'm going to be 41. And, and, and my wife has learned to live with a guy who does not believe he has a birthday. We have a month. I call it the month of the Paul. That's my birthday. Do you know how hard it is to get a wife to go along with the month of the Paul? But those are my expectations. If I lose Didi, my birthdays will never be the same. They'll go back to one day. My expectations. John the Baptist had expectations of Jesus. That's exactly what's going on here. And verse 2 provides the clue. Verse 2 says, Now when John, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ... He sent word by his disciples, are you the one? While imprisoned, John's got some serious questions. That's what's going on here. That wasn't in the job description. No way. So John the Baptist, fulfillment of prophecy, comes into this world. He's a prophet, check. Like Elijah, check. Prepares hearts for the Messiah, did that, check. Points out Messiah's qualifications, Lamb of God, Son of God, check. Gets out of the way, happy to hand it off, check. Watches God bring in the new world order, good prospers, evil is judged, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Nope, nope, didn't work out. That hasn't happened. Sure, there are some miracles. Jesus is good with miracles. And he's quite a teacher, and he's got great hair. You see that in The Chosen? He's got that whole virgin birth thing going on. But I'm in prison. Prison. 
And I'm God's messenger. I'm the one who introduced everyone to the one with a capital. Righteousness is supposed to reign. Judgment is supposed to come on evil. The world, for the first time when Messiah comes, is supposed to be fair and just for once. That's what we expect when Jesus comes to earth. And I'm in prison. He let me down. He cannot be the one because he's letting me down. So Jesus, I'm sending you a couple of my dudes because I'm stuck in prison in shackles. Are you the one? Or should we be looking for somebody else? Because this is not working out for me the way it's supposed to work out. The real God wouldn't do this. Um, yes, he does. He does. And when he does, we often have the same reaction. Christian scholar Larry Taunton launched a nationwide campaign to interview college students who are members of secular student alliances. The atheist equivalents to sort of like the Christian campus groups. By using social media, Larry and his organization contacted the leaders of these groups and asked them to share their journey to unbelief. Their journey away from faith to unbelief or just journey to unbelief in the first place. He said, we just wanted to listen to what they had to say. And after receiving a flood of inquiries from students across the countries, what they had to say startled Larry and his team. And he said this, with few exceptions, students would begin by telling us that they had become atheists for exclusively rational reasons. In other words, intellectually, they became atheists. But as we listened, it became clear that for most, it was a deeply emotional transition as well. It wasn't really the head, it was the heart that was leading them. This phenomenon was most powerfully exhibited in Meredith. She explained in detail how her study of anthropology had led her to atheism. And when the conversation turned to her family, she spoke of an emotionally abusive father. It was when he died that I became an atheist, she said. This is very common, some of the world's most pronounced atheists. You'll have these really hard stories in their backgrounds. I could see no obvious connection between her father's death and her unbelief. Was it because she loved her abusive father? Abused children often do love their parents, and she was angry with God for his death? No, she explained. I was terrified by the thought that he could still be alive somewhere, as in the afterlife. So she wanted to be an atheist so that dad would be done forever. Rebecca, now a student at Clark University in Boston, bore similar childhood scars. When the state intervened and removed her from her home, her mother had attempted suicide, Rebecca prayed that God would let her return to her family. He didn't answer. God didn't answer that prayer. So I figured he must not be real. Boy, if unanswered prayer is going to be the reason somebody becomes an atheist, we're all headed there. If God not intervening in this world the way we want him to, it seems to reflect his nature. If that's going to be the reason we walk away from faith, we're all going to walk away. And this is kind of the norm, not the exception. 
People's hearts are leading them away from faith more than their heads are. Suffering. Doubt can come in a thousand ways. Suffering leads to that doubt, and it can come through loss, death of a child, death of a parent, something that seems to have happened at a time it shouldn't. Parents are supposed to bury, children are supposed to bury their parents, not the other way around. When that timing gets messed up, we wonder if God is good. Injustice, pain. We hold them all against God just like John the Baptist did. Why am I in prison? What's wrong with you? Should I be expecting somebody else? Can I get a better Jesus? Jesus lets it happen. He let it happen to John the Baptist. A miracle for one, prison for you. Jesus works for this one. Jesus is silent for this one. And where Jesus is silent, that person is asking, should I be looking for a different God? Because you're not working out the way I expected. It's those expectations again. They get you every time. How about you? When God disappoints you, where'd your heart go? Where'd your head go? Should we be looking for another God? Third, Doubting Jesus. The cure begins with what he has done, not what he might do. Jesus never responded to John's imprisonment directly in this passage. He just alluded to the fact that he was in a king's palace. We know from the rest of scripture that John was beheaded, so things didn't work out very well for him. Jesus didn't come through, if you want to look at it that way. Jesus never said, to his disciples or to John's. He'll be out soon. It's on appeal, don't worry. We got lawyers working on it. The JCLU is on it. Come on, that's funny. Jewish Civil Liberties Union. Keep up. Instead, this is what he said. He said, tell John this. This is what I want you to tell John. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. He said, look at the evidence. Look at the evidence that you know is true. Miracles surround me. Miracles abound. What I touch is transformed. So Jesus actually spent a little time actually affirming that John had been the forerunner. John's showing some doubts and Jesus starts saying, hey, wait a minute, everyone. I want you to know this was the guy who was pointing to the guy. This was the one the Old Testament talked about and he quotes the Old Testament. John was that fulfillment of prophecy because by Jesus affirming that John is the fulfillment of prophecy for the forerunner, he's affirming that John got it right in the first place and Jesus is the Messiah. It's an indirect way of saying I'm the one and he was the one too, though he's wavering a little bit. Probably should visit him. Needs a little pep talk. But that doesn't mean He's getting his miracle. 
And so the, the summary is sort of the main point of this passage, verse 6. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. I really don't like that translation. Greek word comes from kind of this scandalizomai. We get our word scandal from it. That's not very helpful either. But there's two common translations of this word when you get to English. Offended. Blessed is me, or blessed is he who does not take offense or who's not offended at me. I don't like that word because the way we use offended is, you know, I don't like something you just did and I'm offended. It's not really that. It's more of a blessed is he who does not fall away, whose faith is not broken by me, by something I do, by how I don't come through. Blessed are those who don't give up the faith. Blessed are those who don't let their disappointments drive them away from God. Blessed are those who don't give up on me, Jesus, when I don't come through the way you're expecting. Blessed are you when you hang in there, when you want to be asking, should I be looking for another Jesus? Blessed are you when you stop short of looking. Because the overwhelming evidence is he is who he says he is. And you know that. And your head knows that. And you don't let your heart take you away from that. A few applications here. When Jesus is the problem with Jesus. First, embrace doubt as a normal part of faith's journeys. We all, we all have doubts. There's things in the Bible that I don't love but being under the lordship of Christ, I try to be honest with them, but usually when I'm preaching about it, I tell you I don't really care for it, but God is God and I'm not, the last I checked. But we all have doubts. We all wonder about some things in the Bible. It's part of the faith process. But we're still all making a bet on eternity with what we choose to believe and where our hearts land. And I like the proof that is in history and the scriptures for Christianity. But, but we're not going to know for sure until someday. When we get to heaven, we'll know we were right. I believe we're right. I believe in the historical evidence. I believe it's strong. I believe that no other world religion is a close second place. But we're all operating on faith here. Informed faith, but faith. But until we can see and we're in heaven, the reality is some doubt is natural. We're born questioners. Look at the wonderment of a little child in its eyes before it can speak. The child's great word when it begins to speak is, why? Every child is full of every kind of question about every kind of thing that moves and shines and changes in the little world in which it lives. That is the incipient doubt in the nature of man. Respect doubt for its origin. It's an inevitable thing. It's not a thing to be crushed. It's a part of man as God made him. Doubt is the prelude to knowledge. It's a part of the journey. Second, and this is the big one, analyze your expectations against the statements of Jesus, not Western culture. There's an awful lot of people disappointed with God because he's not meeting their expectations and their expectations have nothing to do with things God promised them in the first place. 
But once you get off track here, you know, if you heard the gospel, hey, God loves you, and he's got the greatest plan for you, and it's just going to be blessing after blessing after blessing, and you can find that on cable TV anytime today probably. Man, when that person faces some real hardship and God doesn't come through, I mean, the first person that's going to ask, you know, should I be looking for another Jesus? Are you the one or should I be looking for somebody else? What did Jesus actually say to the people who were going to follow him in the first century? Let me give you a few, a few clues. If you want to follow me, you need to be willing to carry your own cross. So basically that was him saying, you need to be willing to die for the cause because I'm starting a movement of martyrs. He later said it this way, the servant is not greater than the master. In other words, if they kill me, what do you think they're going to do to you? Okay, that was to be the first century expectation of following Jesus, and the movement grew like crazy. It was a movement of martyrs. That's what you signed up for, by the way. The gospel hasn't changed. If you want to follow me, you need to hate your mother, father, sister, brother. Now, I think that's hyperbole to make the point, Jesus' point being, your commitment to me is above all other relationships, When you're committed to God above everything else, you'll be a better father, mother, sister, brother, but the reality is God is first. That's what Jesus said. Is that your expectation of what you signed up for? Or have you sort of adopted the, you know, hey, I live in a Western society, therefore, if I've got Jesus plus, you know, a great country, everything should be just great for me. Well, let's just remind ourselves sometimes what we signed up for. Third, remember God's other reason for allowing disappointment and suffering. Christ-likeness through pain. Okay, so you signed up to add Jesus to the rest of your great life. And Jesus is signing you up for Christ-likeness through pain. Do you think maybe we're at odds with God sometimes? I want to be less mature and have less suffering. Don't you? I mean, isn't that a better plan? Less maturity, less suffering. Jesus says, I'm going to use the pain in your life to make you better, to make you like myself, in fact. I don't want that. I don't want that at all. I don't ever want to get sick. I don't ever want to die. I'll get my knees replaced. I want to keep lifting weights and do whatever I do and never get old and never die. Eventually, we all suffer. This form breaks down. You you can escape it for a while, everything's turning up roses in your life, but eventually we all fall apart, we all die. And God doesn't answer the last prayer. Remember God's other reason for allowing disappointment. God is using difficulty not to drive us away from himself, but to change us and make us better and more like Christ, to give us character that he can't otherwise get in us. Fourth, imagine a life where Jesus never disappoints. And look forward to it. It's called heaven. Heaven. Don't we want it now, though? You know, they've done surveys on people. Uh, well, I don't have to talk about surveys. I'll be able to tell you how I feel about it. I don't want to go to heaven anytime soon. Do you? I'm, I'm thinking I'm going to stay in sort of these digs as long as I can. I don't want to die even if heaven's a better place. I am in it for good. As long as I can make it on earth, I want to be here. Do you know who doesn't feel that way? When you survey people in like fourth world countries, You're thinking, what's a fourth world country? It's worse than a third world country. That's what it is. 
You survey those Christians who barely can get enough food to survive and take care of their kids, and you ask them about heaven, they're like, yeah, that's gonna be a better place. That is so great, I wish I was in heaven. We don't feel that way. You see, this earth was never supposed to be heaven. That's why it's a better place. It's rid of sin and disease and death and suffering. It is the perfect place. But it's not here. Finally, when in doubt, let the clear truths about Jesus overwhelm the less clear ones and keep the faith. That's what Jesus said to John, to go tell John. Hey, John, look at the basic evidence. Don't get sidetracked here. I know you're in jail. I, it's not like Western jails where it's three square meals a day, cable TV, and weightlifting. This is a you know, New Testament jail. It's not a good place to be. I know you're in jail. I know you're struggling. I know you're asking if there's another one coming and you got it wrong. But what do you need to remember? Blind people now see, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the gospel is preached to the poor. You know these things, John. There's evidence for all of this. Keep the clear things in mind. Let them sort of shelve the doubts. But that's hard to us. That's hard for us. There can be things that are so clear in our minds, yet something will take us astray. Mary Jo Sharp writes about this, writes in her book, Why I Still Believe. She says there's something else going on here. Humans don't always believe it when they see it. She offers the example of General Dwight Eisenhower, who was careful to document his visit to a concentration camp during the Second World War. In an April 1945 letter to George Marshall, he wrote about this, about his visit to a concentration camp in Germany. He says, the things I saw, just beg description, the visual evidence, the verbal testimony of starvation, cruelty, and things I'm not gonna read to you right now, were so overpowering as to leave me a bit sick. I made the visit deliberately in order to be in position to give firsthand evidence of these things if ever in the future there develops a tendency to charge these allegations merely to propaganda. In other words, I wanted to see all of it. I want all of it recorded just to make sure that nobody would be dumb enough to deny the Holocaust. And yet here we are. Eisenhower ordered the collection of documentation of the Holocaust, resulting in 80,000 feet of film footage, which was used as evidence in the Nuremberg trials. Eisenhower also collected numerous photos, including ones of himself at concentration camps to provide evidence of firsthand witness. Yet it didn't take long for Holocaust deniers to appear. These deniers are people who have access to an abundance of testimony and evidence of the existence of the Holocaust somehow. With all the evidence available, the Holocaust deniers remain unconvinced of this horrific event in human history. Jesus says, hey, <laughs> stick with the evidence that's clear. Don't get sidetracked. That's what we should be as historians about things like the Holocaust. Hey, what do we know for sure? We've got pictures, we've got evidence, we've got eyewitnesses, people were there, we made sure, we documented it. We've got the same thing about Jesus of Nazareth the prophecies about him, the virgin birth, the life of miracles. He was surrounded by all of it. Don't get sidetracked by a little doubt that takes your heart astray and says, Jesus hasn't come through for me. Should I be looking for another God? No, no. 
No. Stick with the things we know, the clear truths, and keep the faith. I believe the claims of Jesus are true. If it wasn't, I wouldn't be here on a Sunday morning. I'd find the next best source of truth. I'd find the best religion. Or I'd become an agnostic and watch the NFL. But I would not follow a lie. And neither would you. There are so many things that we can be so certain about through history. No other religion has this kind of evidence of a miraculous God coming into this human family and doing these incredible things. We have it recorded so that we would have faith. Don't be pulled away by the disappointments in life. God, we thank you for your word. And as I said earlier, if I were writing the Bible and it weren't the truth about you and about Jesus, I would never include this story of the person who was most important to authenticating Jesus, doubting Jesus. And yet you're so honest with us about the struggles of faith. Help us with our struggles, the struggles I have, the struggles we have, to take you at your word in all ways, to believe in you the way the Bible teaches and yet to face disappointments in life where at times we feel like you are silent or distant or don't care about us. We know it's not true. Help us to keep those main truths in our, in our minds, in the front of our minds, that you are God, that you are the Son of God, that you died for us and rose again. Help us to keep those main things, the main thing, and to, to guide our broken heart at times through the lens of what we know to be true. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to bethanychapel.com and click Come. Thanks again and God bless you.